So this retreat is drawing to a close. Tomorrow we all return to the world. Tonight I want to talk about some of the changes that we experience as we practice. What can you expect to take with you when you go back tomorrow? I'd like to begin with describing what are called the worldly winds, a way the Buddha described the world. He said it's a play of four pairs of opposites, some of which you have become quite intimately familiar with on this retreat. The play of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, or sometimes called pride and shame. These are what are called the worldly winds. And of course, in the world we try to have the pleasure, the praise, the winning, the success, and we try to avoid the pain, the loss, the failure, and the blame or shame. These are the conventional values by which the ego self, which Howie described to us so well last night, measures itself by these values. How am I doing? Am I winning? Am I losing? Am I feeling good about myself? Am I feeling blamed or shamed? When our life is ruled by these worldly winds, we are, are blown about because it's very hard to control only getting the part we like. And you've seen that in your practice. When you come in to sit, can you say only pleasure, please? Only the really yummy parts of meditation, please? And order it up? No. So the path that the Buddha shows us is another way, a deeper seeing into the nature of reality, which frees us from believing in the worldly winds as the way to be, as the way to live, as the states in which to place our faith. The teachings of the Buddha instead are an invitation to, a, to live a life dedicated to investigating, contemplating, and discovering for ourselves the truth. A Buddhist scholar, Ashvagosha, wrote this many centuries ago. The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world. But the Dharma of the Buddha does require every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse the heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure, and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into this task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, 
They engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. So that is a beautiful description of this journey we are on, the same journey that has been taken by thousands, if not millions, of seekers on the way. I like to think of these two different ways of being in the world as gravitational fields. And when we are in the gravity field of pursuing the worldly winds, we are in samsara. We are going around and around, pursuing, trying to shore up this fragile sense of self by getting it all together. And somehow the practice asks that we shift into another gravitational orbit, and that is the orbit of truth. We become more interested in the pull, the longing for, the the uh, inspiration to know truth than to keep pursuing the limited life of self. This means becoming conscious in all the ways that you have been doing this week of all aspects of our experience. And this means seeing in a new way, having an insight or a number of insights. And as you know, this form of practice is called insight meditation. A student often asks, and we had, I think, somebody ask in this retreat, what is an insight and how will I know when I have one? So let me say a few words about insight. Insights happen on many different levels. We may have insights as we are sitting and walking and going through our days here into many practical matters, into psychological issues, into life decisions, into health issues or relational issues. And this is all very good. But the classical aim of insight in insight meditation is insight into what are called the three characteristics. What are they? Very simply, the truth of impermanence, the truth of ceaseless change, that we live in a sea of change, the truth of the suffering that comes when we try to hold on, and the truth that there is no locatable self, as Howie was pointing to last night. Now, these are not idle insights. These are not just concepts that we hold about ourselves or life, but have the power when they penetrate to liberate us from our misconceptions about who and what we are. And the means by which this occurs is this practice that you've been doing all week, this practice of mindful awareness. And it may not be obvious to you that this simple but not so easy practice is in itself a liberating force in our minds. That the seeing and direct experiencing of what is so in the present actually has the power to free us. 
I didn't believe that at the beginning of my practice. I started in the Zen tradition. I experimented in the Tibetan tradition. And because those traditions have more ritual, have more um, I heard other languages being spoken. I heard more chanting. I somehow got the idea from that kind of aura of mystery that there were probably secret teachings. And that if I was really good, someday somebody would take me aside and say, now you're ready for, you know, the secret teachings. And I would be taken into some back room and something magical would happen and that would be wonderful. But of course that never happened, not, didn't happen. Because over time what I realized, and especially after I came to this more plain way of practice, that actually the teachings that we are wanting so badly to learn and open to are what are called self-secret. They're always being given. Every moment of your experience, you are receiving the secret teachings. But we don't see them. We don't hear them. We don't recognize them. The secret is we keep them secret from ourselves by our blindness, by our distraction, not through any fault of ours, nothing to feel. There's a buzzing here. We simply don't see the open secret of the truth as it unfolds right here in our very own experience, moment to moment. So when I heard in the practice, as we have been saying to you, that it is the truth, it is contact with the truth which liberates, I thought that sounded really good. Can I be heard? Okay. But I kept looking outside of my experience for this truth. I thought I would hear it in a Dharma talk. I thought I would read it in a book. Or if I went to visit a high lama, it would happen. I kept looking for it outside of myself. And it took a long while to understand and convince myself that the truth I was seeking was appearing in my own ordinary experience. And what was even more significant was that I realized I didn't need to change my experience one iota in order to recognize the secret teachings. I only needed to see is it, is it the secret teaching. The secret teaching. Put that down. Put it down. Put it down. Let it go. See, I was, I was fooling myself, and I thought it was something to do with the machine. <laughs> yes, this is beautiful. When we see what is already present, and we have failed to see it before, that is receiving the secret teachings right there. 
An example, this was a great example, I have another example also to share with you. And that is the example of something that was popular for a while, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's so popular now. It's uh, the example of the stereogram. There was a time about 10, 15 years ago where they, you would go to a party and somebody would have a large poster on their wall that on quick glance looked to be like a picture with many, 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 many dots, colored dots. And you'd look at it and you'd think, well, that's just a bunch of dots. You wouldn't see anything there at all. But somebody would say, oh, do you see the jungle there with the lions and the tigers and the elephants and the trees and the birds? And, and you'd look and you'd think, no, I don't see that at all. <laughs> and then they would say, okay, well, you've got to stand back. You've got to breathe. You have to relax, relax, but not too relaxed. You have to stay a little bit alert, but look carefully, you know, kind of sit back and go like that. And then you will see it. So I tried and tried, and I think a glass of wine helped. And <laughs> eventually, there it was. There was this 3D picture that appeared out of all of these dots. And once, of course, you see the lion and the tiger and the birds and the trees, you think, oh, God, how could I not have seen that before? It's so obvious once you have seen it. And insight is very much like that. We see something that is already here, that has always been here, will always be here, but it's like we're seeing it for the first time. And mindfulness gives us access to seeing in this way. And so this is the kind of attention you are cultivating and have been cultivating on this retreat. This is in the service of liberation, of awakening out of the dream of the small self. This is the aim and direction of all of this practice we've been doing this week. Sometimes mindfulness now is advertised as stress reduction. This is not stress reduction. This is not about changing our personality, you know, getting rid of this personality that maybe is troublesome in our lives. It's not about attaining a permanent state of some kind of bliss. Now, it's true there will be less stress in your life. Your personality will be kinder, will be softer. Bliss will visit you regularly if you continue this practice. But these are actually only side effects of a more fundamental change. And that is what I want to talk about tonight. A more fundamental change which is a change in our view of what is important and where to place our attention. The practice is sneaky. It doesn't seem like much, but over some days, some time, some weeks, some years, we find our perception is open. William Blake said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is. 
infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through the narrow chinks of his cavern. Kind of a graphic picture of our dilemma. The journey of mindfulness practice is this cleansing of our perception, which reveals what is true. And as our perception changes, so too does our view of ourselves and our world. Tonight I'd like to speak briefly about five specific ways our view changes as we practice. The first is our view of the body. And I covered much of this in my talk the other night on the life of the body, so I won't repeat that here. Essentially, as we've been practicing this week, we are learning to live inside of our bodies, feeling from the body from the inside as a changing, flowing, energetic field of sensations, of elements, as we have been encouraging you to drop down from the head into your heart. We discover the emotions that are held and felt so keenly in the body. Over time, we experience the body as a resource, not something to transcend, but as our grounding cord in the present. The body becomes our way of cultivating this present aliveness of being. The second thing which changes is our way of learning and knowing what is true. In the conventional world, we put a lot of energy in trying to know things, to gather information, to analyze, to figure out, to have the right opinion, to figure out what to believe, to have a ground of knowledge under us that feels secure. In this practice, we are not looking for a doctrine to believe in, a new dogma to make us feel secure, but rather we are cultivating a way of seeing with greater clarity and a way of being with more open-heartedness which empowers us to trust our actual experience, to know based on our direct experience. The Buddha said, come see for yourself if what I say is true. Trust your actual experience. Don't just believe what I say. Now, at first, I know for myself, this invitation was very inviting. Nobody in my whole life had said, trust, come see for yourself, trust what you find. It was always, no, listen to me, I'll tell you how it is. So it was a very inviting invitation. While later on it may be more challenging because we are not used to trusting our actual experience more than the idea of what our experience should be. In our lives, when we're trying to feel okay, when we're trying to be good, to be lovable, we very often turn away from what we are actually experiencing, 
we try to override that to go towards how we think we should be, how we are taught as children to be nice, to be good. And so, of course, in the spiritual world, you think that is how you should be. Peaceful, good, calm, easygoing. But we may be experiencing something quite opposite. So we learn as children not to trust our actual experience, but to improve it in order to present ourselves in a way we hope will be acceptable or lovable. And this is one of the biggest changes which we can experience from our meditation practice, to be more truthful, to be more truthful, first to ourselves, then to others about our actual experience. In doing this, and through the many instructions we are given, we discover that it is actually a great act of love to meet ourselves where we are, as we are. A great act of love. It is a way we respect and care for ourselves. We begin to see that when we are resisting or judging, this is not caring for ourselves. This is not loving ourselves. It is strengthening feelings of shame and unworthiness. So, allowing yourself to have the experience you are having, that's revolutionary. It means clearly recognizing what you are feeling and saying, yes, I see this is what is true right now. Not, yes, this is who I am, this terrible person, I'm stuck with being angry forever. No, but yes, this is what is present in this moment. Yes means turning towards it to understand it, to see its nature, to notice how it feels in the body. What is this story that it tells? Do you think it is, do I think of it as me or mine? This, this ability to directly meet our experience is really the lifeblood of our practice. And out of this we discover many things. One of them being that we have the capacity to do this. We can do this. We don't need to run away from our feelings or judge ourselves. We have other options. We can meet and be truthful. We don't need to believe the story that our feelings are telling us or be afraid of them. We learn something very important, which is that our awareness is more powerful than any feeling. Awareness can hold whatever arises. It is, you could say, the most powerful tool in our toolbox. Ajahn Sumedho, one of the senior monastics in our community, wrote this. He said, well, awareness is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. 
We always have a perspective once we know the space of awareness, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go without us being caught in reaction or resistance. There's room for everything. This is what is meant by the practice of letting go, trusting and trusting ourselves to the power of awareness. Of course, we usually try many other things first. That is our tendency. I call it mindfulness as the last resort. Well, I've tried everything else to get rid of this anger, and so, okay, you say I should sit and be with it. All right. So, in Vipassana meditation, we cultivate this silence and stillness as a way to bring you close to this experience. Otherwise, we don't do it, do we? So silence and stillness, at times I'm sure you've struggled with that this week, but on the other hand, that's the fire that has kept you close to seeing what is going on in your experience. There are other forms of learning to access the present as well. And different, different Buddhist traditions use different methods for bringing us close to our direct experience. In some traditions, they use uh, inquiry, asking questions which cannot be answered by the mind. In the Zen tradition, they have koans, questions which cannot be answered by thinking about by reasoning, by referencing the past, or relying on some kind of historical knowledge or information. There was a meeting years ago of a Tibetan teacher named Kali Rinpoche and a Korean Zen master, Sansani. And in the Korean Zen tradition, they use this method of, of asking a question. And the question they often use is this question, what is it? What is it? If you went to a monastery in Korea, you might be given that as your practice to sit day and night with this question. What is it? It's very commonly used. So when uh, somebody suggested that Kali Rinpoche and Sansanim meet, so they met for the first time. It's kind of still unusual in the Buddhist tradition for teachers from different cultures, different traditions to meet. You know, they have very different methods and languages and all that. So, but they met. And Sansani brought an orange to the meeting. And when he, he met Kalu Rinpoche, I imagine he was very delighted to meet Kalu Rinpoche. And so he was holding an orange and he said to Kalu Rinpoche, what is it? Thinking, I suppose, that Kala Rinpoche, the great, incredibly enlightened Tibetan Lama, would be a, have a brilliant you know, response of some sort. 
And Kala Rinpoche kind of scratched his head and asked his interpreter what the man was saying. And he said, what is it? And this went on for some minutes until finally Kala Rinpoche turned to his translator and said, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> So questioning, when I did my first ever Buddhist retreat, it was a Zen retreat, and I had no idea what I was getting into, or I never would have gone, but that's <laughs> how we learn. So I went to Mount Baldy Zen Center, and I was um, there for a period of, of seven days, and um, they use koans there, and I was given the koan by the the Rinzai Zen master, very uh, fierce kind of practice, and he, we would go to meet him four times a day, and the only thing you got to ever talk to him about was, you know, the answer to the koan. It wasn't like you went in and said, well, this morning I noticed the rising and the passing, and it wasn't like that, or, you know, I'm having trouble with my relationship, could you give me some advice? It wasn't like that. So he gave me this koan that was, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? Well, I hadn't a clue. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> I had never heard of such a question. I had never imagined anybody in my whole life would ask me such a question. So I think I said something like, I beg your pardon. You know? <laughs> I completely failed, completely. But I hear these kinds of questions can be very useful in one's practice. <laughs> what has helped me more are questions that have arisen in the course of my life, or questions that have provoked me to look a little more closely at my direct experience. A, an example might be a question like, what keeps me from being present? I can ask myself that question at any moment during the day, and it will be fruitful. What is keeping me from being present? Another such question might be, who am I taking myself to be right now? You might ask yourself that question right now. Who are you taking yourself to be? Some idea of yourself, some fiction of yourself. It comes and it goes, doesn't it? So these kinds of questions are little ways of bringing a little more light into the present moment, into seeing what the mind is up to. One of my teachers says, the spark that leads to awakening is the courage to question everything. Nothing should be out of bounds. If we are not willing to look at everything, if there is something out of bounds, then in that area we are asleep. The hidden secret of awakening is the willingness to question. So we learn in our practice how to be in the body. We learn about trusting in awareness. Now I want to talk about the present how one of the things that changes is how we learn to orient ourselves to the present, not living so much in the past or in the future. As we have been instructing this week, 
you know, how many times have you been reminded to come back, to be present with the breath, with the body, with whatever is occurring in your own experience. We learn to make this a habit. Has it become a habit for you this week to keep returning to the present? You're supposed to raise your hands. I think, I, I imagine it has become more of a habit. And it is fruitful to ask as well. Here's another question. What is my relationship to the present? What is our relationship to the present? As Howie said last night, he mentioned several ways in which we uh, look at the present sometimes as a problem. Do we see the present moment as something to get through? to endure in order to attain the goal, to, to get through in order to get to where we want, rather a means to an end. Or is the present moment the enemy? That can also happen. The obstacle to your satisfaction. If only this pain would go away, then I could be present, then I could meditate. The present moment at times may seem intolerable, like the moments before the bell rings. Completely unacceptable. This should not be happening. Then we get locked into a struggle, don't we? Years ago, uh, I think it was on my first long retreat, I got into a VV, a Vipassana Vendetta, with somebody who one day came into the hall. He arrived late at the retreat. He I was just getting a handle on, you know, a kind of blissful, peaceful feeling in my meditation. I was feeling just like, wow, this is it. This is, I'm finally here. I'm finally getting my money's worth. I'm sitting. <laughs> and into the hall comes this guy in the back of the hall. I was sitting somewhere, you know, up front, and he was in the back. But I could hear him, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Never mind, never mind, I mean, you know. And then more and more noise, until finally I had to turn around to see what was going on, because it was like banging and crashing, and I couldn't figure out what could be possibly happening. I turn around. <laughs> and he's building a little hut in the back of the hall. He had brought construction materials and building blocks and he was going to make himself a little hut. So I was just like, this should not be happening. <laughs> it was definitely became an obstacle there for a few days. And I noticed that I, I felt this, this sense of outrage you know, even when he was being quiet, you know, later on the next day he was walking peacefully and I still felt like <laughs> So this practice of mindfulness actually is our way of finding harmony even when it is difficult. Mindfulness doesn't have an opinion. It just shows us what is occurring. And so we learn to see more clearly 
We learn to skillfully work with whatever is arising, sensations, emotions, thoughts, beliefs, storms of this and that, memories. Eckhart Tolle calls this making friends with the present. He writes really beautifully about this. He says, the decision to make the present moment into your friend is the end of ego. Time is what the ego lives on. The stronger the ego, the more time takes over your life. Almost every thought you think is then concerned with past or future, and your sense of self depends on the past for your identity and on the future for its fulfillment. The Buddha called the present moment the one fortunate attachment. He said, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent now to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day, one who knows the better way to live. So taking up residence in the present moment is something that grows in us over time. We begin to prefer it because all the qualities we seek are found only in the present. Qualities of peace and love and kindness, freedom, ease, spaciousness, where are they found? Not in thinking about the past, not in longing for the future, but only in this openness to being present. Eckhart again, he said, you cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. You can only be free now. So our view of the body changes, our view of awareness as the way of knowing truth changes, our view of the significance of the present changes. Fourthly, the next way in which practice changes is us is the view of our capacity and our inherent sufficiency. The view of our capacity and our inherent sufficiency. A lot of what you have been learning here this week is that you have a capacity to meet yourself and to discover what is true you are discovering that practice shifts us from this woeful sense of deficiency that we all, all often feel in the face of our problems to a very real sense of our sufficiency. You know, in our consumer culture, we are inducted actually into a trance, the trance of scarcity, that who we are, oh, that we're that what we have is never enough, 
that we haven't done enough and that who we are is not enough. We need to improve to make ourselves better. We need more of this, more of that. We need to get more done. This puts a tremendous amount of pressure and, an, and induces an artificial sense of lack in people. And I see this all the time when people come on retreat with this woeful sense of, you know, just overwhelm, we could say. So these messages come to us quite, you know, regularly through the media. Buy this, do that, improve this, get rid of that. So one of the things that practice begins to show us is that pursuing what is told to us will fill us up or make us feel happier or more uh, fulfilled. What we eventually discover through practice is it all comes from the inside. It does not come from the outside. Nothing in the external world can make us whole or complete. No person, no amount of wealth, not even education, not even copious amounts of spiritual teachings. You can read every spiritual book in the world and still feel incomplete if you haven't devoted yourself to this inner knowing. I love the word realization. The word realization means to make real, to make something real for ourselves. And when we practice, this is what happens. Only realization will bring us to wholeness, completeness, sufficiency, that who we are is enough. As we practice, we discover we have within us many undiscovered, resources of heart and mind, loving-kindness, forgiveness, compassion, patience, equanimity, serenity, courage. All these begin to show themselves, do they not? Have you seen that this week, how these things appear and begin to hold you? They grow, they develop in us, they become more available to us, they become real. This means we are beginning to realize them as living qualities in ourselves. I, several years ago, was on retreat for almost a month and I went directly from the retreat to the airport, as some of you may be going tomorrow. I was feeling fabulous from the retreat, and I got to the airport, I got up to the ticket counter and was told, matter-of-factly, oh, your flight is canceled. You know how that feels. Oh, fabulous, you know. Usually it would have provoked quite a bit of feeling in me, but I was feeling so calm, so balanced. It was like, oh, that's interesting. And what I was struck by was that they had figured it all out for me, so I didn't even have to f- 
figure it out. They said, well, you go here, you get to this plane, then you land here, and then you get on this other plane. It was like a miracle. They had figured it all out. So that is the effect of making real some of these qualities. Huang Po, another ancient friend, said, when you see deeply into your nature, you immediately realize that all that you need is there in perfection and in abundance, and nothing is at all wanting or lacking in you. Finally, I want to talk about our view of dukkha, suffering that which is difficult to bear. Basically, the movement of mind which wants it to be different than it is. The suffering that is found in the minor discomfort as well as in the unbearable anguish of crisis or tragedy. So in practice, we get to look at not only what happens to it, to us, but how we are relating to it. What is the actual source of our difficulty? It's quite common to say it's in the event itself. Achan Chah tells us to investigate this. He said we need to recognize where the suffering is actually occurring. He said, if you have an itch on your leg, you don't scratch your ear. What he meant is, is the suffering that you're experiencing in the sound of your neighbor breathing noisily or in your reaction to the sound? Is the suffering in not seeing your name on the interview list or in your reaction to this? So investigating our reactivity to the inevitable challenges of life is the first big step in shifting our view of our of suffering in learning to make our reactivity itself our judgment our aversion our impatience our agitation the object of our attention we discover that our freedom is not getting rid of the things we don't like but in how we are relating to them. I'd like to read a poem that really says this very powerfully. It is a poem by Donna Falls in her book, Go In and In. It's called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild with the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, 
practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So how we meet this life. Another poem called The Healing Time by Pesta Gertler. Finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones. And I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. Do we say yes? Do we say no? Saying yes doesn't mean being a victim. It simply means acknowledging the truth of what is present. The Buddha spoke of suffering and the end of suffering as the path of practice. And the end of suffering, sometimes we hear that and it can seem really, really far away. It can be viewed actually in two ways as the culmination of the path, as enlightenment, liberation, wake, awakening, or it can be viewed much more close to home as a momentary experience of mindfulness. When we are mindful, greed is absent, aversion is absent, confusion is absent in those moments. In those moments, we can recognize an experience of no suffering. So these are five ways in which we change through our practice. Changes which we will experience as our practice deepens. Our view of and our experience of the body our trust in mindful awareness to show us what is true, our experience of our sufficiency that we have within us everything we need, our understanding that the present is where we open and deepen, and our understanding of suffering as our teacher. So I hope some of this has connected for you and that you will take some of these understandings home with you because they will help you in your life. I'd like to close with a poem, not a, really a poem, but a, a piece of writing by Billy Mills. How many of you know who Billy Mills was? Anybody? I only learned this last year myself. Billy Mills was the first Native American to receive an Olympic gold medal. This was back in the early 60s. But because of racism, the 
his picture was never taken and it was never shown anywhere in the media because he was Native American. Hard to believe. So he had a, uh, you know, a real, a life that had a lot of contrast in it. A lot of different experiences of joy and sorrow. So he wrote this, towards the end of his life, he wrote this. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. Let's sit together for a minute. So thank you for your attention, and I also want to very much thank you for your practice this week and tell you how inspiring it is to see and feel your sincerity and your goodwill. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.